Well, welcome to Chapel Hill. My name is Peter Herzog. I am one of the elders here and also one of the worship leaders and uh, so glad to be here with you today. Thanks for coming today. Appreciate it. Um, as I always say when I speak, if you're new here, this is your first time, uh, I'm not the regular speaker. So if you don't like this or what's going on here, you can come next week and see what's really going on. So th- that's the advantage uh, that you have this morning to see maybe, you know, just a, a, a not, not the real thing, but you get a taste of a part of it. And then uh, this joke's falling apart. So, <clears throat> but I want to welcome this morning. We're continuing our, our uh, series in the book of John. So if you uh, want, open up John chapter 10 in your Bible or your app. If you don't have a Bible with you, go ahead and raise your hand and uh, the ushers will be around to bring you one. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that Bible home. That's our gift to you. Feel free to not return that Bible. Uh, but yeah, go ahead and raise your hand and those... Uh, those who don't have a Bible uh, will get one. Um, John chapter 10 is where we're going today. So this week is, uh, maybe you've heard of it, was the, uh, the, con- the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. And uh, um, there was some, I always love this, to, to watch the news coverage of the show because there's some, always some interesting uh, concepts that appear uh, at the show. Like for this, for example, this one, Samsung made a, an, like an exoskeleton. It's this, it's this device that helps you walk. So if you have problems walking, it actually can help you move your feet. Or if you're going through physical therapy, it can actually give you resistance to help you work through that physical therapy. Kind of interesting thing. There's some amazing work happening in exoskeletons where it can make you stronger. Uh, it can give you um, arm strength, etc. Kind of interesting stuff. Also, there's a lot of robots at uh, CES, this, this giant show. Um, these are Samsung robots, and they help elderly people get through their day, help them figure out their pills. It, uh, it's, it's kind of a companion. They look kind of cute. This is the uh, Sony Ibo. This is kind of a dog that's been around for a while. If you don't want a real dog, you can get a robot. Just to let you know. Um, some of them are kind of get more expressive. So if you want to see if your robot's sad or happy, um, this one will actually deliver you food. That's the, the, that's the point of this robot, is to bring food to you. Um, these, they, the, 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 the person that created these said, I actually made them to be annoying in a way. They, 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 he wanted to be kind of this mix between annoying and endearing. And so when you walk them, they kind of waddle up to you and it's supposed to be like companions. And then there's also a, uh, um, a little different, t- uh, there were some other products at CES like the Impossible Burger, which, has anyone had the Impossible Burger? Anyone tried it? Few of you. Do you know what this is? This is a burger that's not made out of beef. It's made out of like some like vegetables and organic materials. It's made in a lab, essentially, and it tastes just like a burger. Well, they came out with version 2.0, and they said it, even, it tastes even more like, a, like real beef. So they, apparently it's winning all these uh, blind taste tests. So check that out when you see that around. It's, it's coming. Awesome stuff, right? So then my favorite thing is like, uh, is these self-driving cars. So self-driving cars are on, on the horizon, right? And so all these designers are thinking about how do we make the car now that you don't have to drive it? What can we do inside this little box? And so they're coming up with all sorts of different ways and shapes. Like this one, you can turn and face each other and have a conversation while you're driving to, you know, to, to, to wherever you're going. Just punch in where you want to go and it takes you there. But we're almost already there, right? Because Tesla is around. You see these Teslas around, um, and they can do self-driving already to a degree. I mean, you can let go, and it will just follow the road, 
and, and even follow the directions that you want it to go. Um, it's pretty cool, right? I mean, you still have to, today, you still have to kind of keep your hand near the wheel, and, and uh, it's not fully automated just yet, but they say it's just around the corner. Well, what I find interesting about this, these self-driving vehicles is there's kind of a philosophical dilemma that's, that's come about. And uh, maybe you've heard of this, but when we give so much control to these robots, we have to give them the ability to make judgments, and judgments in some pretty significant situations. Like, let me just show you, for example, uh, one of these, one of these uh, situations. So imagine this. <clears throat> imagine, like, in, in A over here. The car is approaching suddenly a crowd of pedestrians. What is the car supposed to do? Is it supposed to just, you know, if it can't stop in time, is it supposed to just run over the pedestrians and save the driver or plow into the wall next to it and sacrifice the driver for the pedestrians? That's a real question they're trying to answer. It's been a philosophical debate for years. Or this one here. What if B, what if you're coming down the road and you see a pedestrian and there's also a pedestrian on the other side of the road? Which one do you take out? <laughs> they have to program the car to make a decision on what it's, what it's going to do in these scenarios. Here's another one. There's a crowd of people and now there's a passenger in the car. So it's not just the driver. It's also the passenger there that's going to be at risk. Do you... Do you sacrifice the driver and the passenger for the pedestrians or the opposite? Interesting dilemma, huh? Dilemma. Um, so in 2015, there was a study that was done where they looked into this and they, pulled, they, they surveyed some people and they asked the question, they asked this, <clears throat> should a self-driving car save pedestrians at the price of killing the driver? That was the question. And what do you think pe most people said? Turns out most people said, yes, a self-driving car should save pedestrians at the sacrifice of the driver. That's what most people said. Now, the next question said this, would you buy a car? <laughs> would you buy a car that's programmed to sacrifice its owner for the greater good? And most people said, no. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Now, this one book I was reading actually kind of came up with this idea. Okay, all right, here's how we solve this. What if we put this button in the car? It, you can put the car into altruist mode or egoist mode. And that way you get to choose. Funny stuff, but take a moment and think about it. If you were to get in your self-driving car and you were presented with this switch... What would you pick? Would you allow your car to make a decision to sacrifice your life for the sake of pedestrians driving on the road? Interesting question. Interesting thing to think about. I'd feel guilty about pushing all, uh, egoist. But there's a temptation there, isn't there? Because you don't know when it's going to happen. What if the car makes a mistake? All right, speaking of self-driving cars, let's talk about Hanukkah. So, <clears throat> how many of you know the story of Hanukkah? Some of you do, okay. And maybe you have some family that are Jewish and you have kind of a history and know the story, or maybe you were curious one day and you read about it. I'm going to give 
Matrix style, in two minutes, I'm going to give you the story of, of Hanukkah via cartoon. You ready? Okay, here we go. This is a little, a little cheesy cartoon about, about Hanukkah. Hi, this is Peter Jacobson. I'll be reading the story of Hanukkah, adapted by Jeremy Frank. Long ago in the land of Israel, in the center of the walled city of Jerusalem, there stood a beautiful temple. Outside of Israel, though, there lived a very wicked man named Antiochus, the king of Syria. The king did not like people who had beliefs different than his own, and so he went around the world forcing his religion on all the people he conquered. When Antiochus and his army invaded Israel and took it over, he decreed that only his gods could be worshipped. He made the Jews swear that they would give up their religion and customs and follow his instead. He also commanded that all of the Jewish temples be converted or destroyed, including the beautiful one in Jerusalem. Those who refused to follow Antiochus' commands were to be severely punished. Some Jews obeyed Antiochus out of fear, but others were brave enough to refuse. Judah Maccabee was one such man. Judah and his brothers were all strong fighters who formed an army of their own to fight King Antiochus and his men. Although they were greatly outnumbered, the Maccabees fought the Syrian army with all their might. With the strength that only comes from fighting for something you truly believe in, Judah and the Maccabees defeated Antiochus and his army and triumphantly reclaimed the temple in Jerusalem. However, when they entered the temple for the first time, they were... Hi, this is to see it in shambles. The golden pitchers were all tarnished, the marble floors were cracked, and there was no oil to light the menorah. They began cleaning the temple, removing every sign and symbol of the religion that had been forced upon them by their invaders. As they worked, they found a small container of oil. They all knew the little oil they had would only be enough for one night, but then a miracle took place. Instead of going out, the lamps kept burning and burning. They burned for eight days and eight nights, and this way the Maccabees knew God was with them. That is why we celebrate Hanukkah every year, and why we light eight candles in our menorahs. The end. <laughs> so that's the story of Hanukkah. It happened 150, 150 BC, 150 years before Christ, that the Jews were seeing many of their people become uh, overtaken by Greek culture. And so much so that the temple was starting to change and their customs were starting to change. And for, for many Jews, they watched their own culture erode, erode away. And it disturbed them. And so there was this Maccabean revolt led by Judah Maccabee. And you can read it in the book of Maccabees, which is this book that happens between uh, uh, the, the book of Malachi and Matthew. If, you've, if you're Catholic, you may have that. It's called the Apocrypha. It's like the, the, the books between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's not in our book, in our, in our Bible, but it is in some. And he, he leads a revolt to take over and to restore the temple. And he does that. And it's an incredible story. And, and, uh, that, that's, and it celebrates the miracle, the, the, the lamp lighting. But I want to bring this, a couple questions that Hanukkah raises because there are some key questions that the reason why Hanukkah was established was to remind the people that leadership could go south. Leadership could fall. Leadership could get corrupt, could get compromised. And it happened to the Jewish people in 150 B.C. 
And so during the time of Hanukkah, they ask questions like this, and they think about it, and they contemplate, how did temple leadership lose its way? How did the leaders fall by the wayside? How did they get so enamored with Greek culture that we lost our own way? And then they ask the question this, where were the good leaders? Where, today, where are the good leaders? Who are the ones that are faithfully following God's call? And also they ask the question, what should good leaders do today? What, are we, what should we be doing? What, what are some of the concerns that are going on within our society, within our, our culture, within our community that we should be addressing? Great questions. And it, was, it came out of watching this horrible thing happen. They said, look, we need to every year think about this and remember and remember and remember and reflect. And oftentimes they would read Ezekiel um, this, this passage in Ezekiel 34, I'm going to read for you now. It's a little bit long, but it's so potent. So let me just read this to you. It says this. Thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourself. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You've been feeding yourself. Shouldn't you feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered. Because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there is no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. He's like, this is what I'm saying. This is me. Thus says the Lord, behold, I'm against the shepherds. I'm against the shepherds. And I'll require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to, feeding, to their feeding the sheep. And no longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they will not be food for them. This passage was a reminder at Hanukkah of God's heart for his sheep and how he was not going to let any false shepherds prevail. And he was going to take back what was rightfully his. I think this question today is really relevant for us, isn't it? Where are the good shepherds? We have so many churches, so many leaders. Where are the good shepherds? Who are the good shepherds? It's a great question for all of us. It's a great question to reflect on. How would you answer that question? Where are the great shepherds today? Who are the great shepherds? And if you look through our history, through biblical history, leaders fall. 
It happens over and over again. David, adultery. Moses, murder. Moses, he didn't follow God's plan. He disobeyed God, yet he was a great leader. Many, many, many leaders fall. It happens today. Last year we lost some, some very influential pastors, made tragic, fatal mistakes. Those with massive influence, worldwide, global, international influence. And they're no longer leading. And people, people are distraught. People are like, they're, they're disoriented. They're like, what a, I've been following this person my whole life. They changed my life. It came to Christ through this person. And then this was revealed. It's extremely relevant. Where are the good leaders? Who are the good leaders? What is a good leader? What is a good shepherd? And so the reason why we bring up Hanukkah today is because John 10 says that Jesus brought this whole teaching on good shepherds during Hanukkah. It says in verse 22, at the time of the Feast of Dedication, the Hebrew word for dedication is Hanukkah. It's at the time of Hanukkah, that was taking place, that Jesus taught on being the good shepherd, who the good shepherd was. And if you remember from last week when Paul spoke, there's this picture of the sheep pen and the gates. And this is where in first century Jewish shepherds, they would bring their sheep into these pens, and then the shepherd would often lay in front of that door and protect the sheep. And so, he, so, so Jesus goes through this, this is from last week. He, sa- he says this, you must discern the shepherd who entered by the gates. You need to look at how shepherds approach you. If they go through the gates, if, they, if the gatekeeper allows them to come in, then they're from God. But the false shepherds, they go around the gates. They come in their own way. They climb over the wall and they seek your destruction. Sheep also must discern their shepherds by their voice. When you hear someone speak and teach, you will know if it's the good shepherd by their voice, by what they say, by what they teach. Jesus says it over and over again, my sheep know my voice, my sheep know my voice, my sheep know my voice. That's how you can tell the good shepherd is you know and you hear his voice, you recognize his voice. But then Jesus flips it around, doesn't he? He says, he says this, he says, I'm the gate. Look, I'm the shepherd who comes in through the gates, but I'm also the gate. I am the gate. I, I'm the one who stands and protects the sheep. I will sit in the gate, sit in, the, in, 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 between, in, in between my, I will sit in between danger and the sheep. And I will not allow any danger to come in. I will protect the sheep. He's the gate. And then Jesus says in John chapter 10, that he's the good shepherd. He's the one who is good. And he just described all the kind of characteristics of a good shepherd. And one of the things I want to point out here is the is word is, is, uh, is kolos. The word for good is kolos. It's the Greek word. 
And it can mean beautiful, but not necessarily beautiful in appearance, but also beautiful in character, beautiful in being a noble person, someone who is honorable, someone who is admirable, someone who is praiseworthy. That's the good shepherd. And then in the midst of this Hanukkah season, and all this teaching on good shepherd, it's clear that he is contrasting good shepherds and bad shepherds. And he says it very clearly in John chapter 10. He distinguishes good shepherds from bad shepherds. He says bad shepherds, they don't own the sheep. Now that can mean a couple different things. One, obviously it's not their sheep, it belongs to God. But it also means they are not committed to the sheep. They don't have ownership over the sheep. There's no commitment there. In fact, their commitment is to self-preservation. One of the marks of a bad shepherd is they're considered, they're committed to self-preservation. And the next thing is that they see a wolf, they see danger, and they run. Because they're more concerned about their own preservation. But a good shepherd is the opposite. A good shepherd owns the sheep. A good shepherd is committed to the sheep. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he also desires deep intimacy with the sheep, which I'm going to talk about here in just a moment. N.T. Wright says this, this quote, He says the emphasis of a good shepherd, the emphasis is on the safety, on the fulfilled life of the sheep. The shepherd has no business looking after his own interests. His priority are the sheep. Find a king like that and you found the Lord's anointed. Find a king like that and you found the Lord's anointed. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Look at this, Pat, look at this. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. What an amazing thing to say. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Think about the connection between Jesus and the Father. Think about the relationship between the Father and the Son. And then Jesus says, I want that same type of relationship with the sheep, with my own. I want them to know me and I want to know them. I do know them. Oftentimes as Christians we talk about how, no, I'm not into religion, I'm into a relationship. I love that phrase. However, when we say relationship, we're talking about in caps relationship. Capital R, capital E, I'm not going to do the whole word. Relationship. Like, oftentimes, in the Bible, it's, it, it refers to a marriage type of relationship, doesn't it? Like God wants, Jesus wants such a connection with us. He wants to know us so, so well. He wants us to know him so deeply, so passionately, in this, to, to the same degree that the Father knows the Son. That's his desire. He knows what you're going through Right now. He knows your dreams, your concerns, your worries. He knows how you're stuck. He knows how you're working so hard on this one thing and you don't see the way out yet. He knows how you need and you need and you need. There's certain things that are just not coming through. He understands that and he's there with you. And when you pray, he listens. 
He's very close. He's very, very close to you. Now, sometimes things don't happen according to our timing. Sometimes things take longer than we want. Sometimes they take months and years before we see God come through. But they come, he does come through. God does come through. I want to talk about that more in just a moment. But he knows you, and he wants you to know him and have, a, have a, the most enriched relationship that you have that you could ever experience on earth. The same type of relationship that he has with his father. That's what Jesus says he wants. And I, look, uh, just to take, take a step back personally, wow. I don't even know what that's like. To know Christ. I mean, I understand he knows me. He sees everything. He's, he sees all of it. He sees, and here's my thoughts, he knows all of it. But I, look, I'm 39 years old, I'm, and I think about this, this thing that Jesus is presenting. I, I want to, know, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. To get to that level, wow, wow. I don't feel like I'm there yet, for sure. And to, to, to imagine going even farther, to, to imagine the depth of that relationship, wow. Hmm. Sit on that for a while. Maybe, perhaps you need to take this verse, highlight it, and maybe you need to put it in front of you and go, God, okay, that's what you want? How do I get there? How do I get there? So, John chapter 10, it's at the Feast of Hanukkah in Jerusalem. It's winter. Jesus is walking on the temple, and the Jews are coming to him with this question that they've been asking him over and over and over again. And the question is this. He's like, they're saying, Okay, how long do you keep us in suspense, Jesus? Because we keep asking you if you're God, and you just give us all sorts of crazy answers. If you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Please, just tell us. Just say yes. That would be nice to hear, because then we could arrest you. Uh, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. No one. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Nothing in this world, no circumstance, no illness, no disease, no situation, no relationship will snatch you out of God's hand. I was driving home last night thinking about this, this that I'm going to preach this this morning. You know what came up? Joy. Just joy. Just like, oh my gosh. Nothing will happen. Like, look, the worst thing could happen. I could, I could lose it all. But in the end... Through eternity, I am held solid and secure in the hands of God. Joy. I'm like, oh my gosh, this just gives me freedom. Freedom beyond anything that CES could ever put in front of me. <laughs> right? Maybe I would flip over to the, to, from living in an egotistical mode where it's all about me and my survival and my, my, uh, my, my self-preservation. Move from that to over to this altruist mode. Where I'm living for other people because I'm already taken care of. I'm already covered. Bring it on. Whatever happens, I'm fine. I, I am unsnatchable. 
I'm unsnatchable, and you are unsnatchable. Look at this. I'm losing my slides again. This, this next passage is so cool because he says, like, he's like, no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is Jesus talking. And then he says this, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So you're like, you're in Jesus' hand, and you're also in the Father's hand. And he says the Father and him are one, of course. But I love that picture, that you're in the hands of Jesus and the hands of the Father. You're doubly unsnatchable. <laughs> so could you live? Do you have to live in the egoist mode? Do you have to live in the self-preservation mode? Do you have to be the kind of shepherd that's all about themselves, that runs away when there's, when there's danger? Or could you move over to here because you're already covered? You're already covered. So just to wrap up quick, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the gate. He protects his shepherd. He desires this deep oneness with, with us that I don't understand yet. He lays down his life for us so we are doubly, doubly unsnatchable. I want the worship team to come up. I just want to praise and worship God right now because I feel a tremendous amount of joy in this. And I want you to feel a tremendous amount of joy in this. Because no matter what you're going through, it does not have the last word. God has the last word. God has the last word. The Father holds his sheep in his hands and you are unsnatchable. You are unsnatchable. And look, what happens to you might end in death. But death doesn't have the last word. Christ has the last word. The Father has the last word. And you are unsnatchable. So even if your favorite, sh- your favorite shepherd, your favorite pastor, your favorite leader falls, that's okay. It's sad. We weep over these moments. But we have a good shepherd who is faithful, who is, who is holding us in his hands, who knows his sheep. He knows you. And he wants you to know him. So think about the Old Testament. The Israelites failed over and over and over again. God called them to be his body, to be his people, and he failed over. They failed over and over and over again. But finally we get to Jesus, and there's one faithful Israelite. It's Jesus, and he lives out the calling God put in his life. And he shines, and he's calling you, and he's saying, you are my sheep. Come be with me. Come knowing that you are stable and secure in my hands. Quit being so afraid. Quit worrying about tomorrow. You're mine. You stand with me. Let's pray together. Oh God, you are the good father. You are the good shepherd. I pray that this theology of being held in the hands of God, this text, would become reality. For all of us, Lord. Move it from the head knowledge, from just understanding of this knowledge piece to the heart. We need transformation, God. Lord, this truth has the power to move us from a life of fear, a life of self-preservation, into a life of courage, into a life of freedom, a life of peace, a life of joy. Move us, God. Help us to be enamored and, and, and see you afresh, Lord. We need a new, fresh revelation of your goodness. Lord, this room, I know there's fear in this room, God. Remove it. Take it away. And bring this amazing freedom. Holy Spirit, come. Take this amazing freedom. Embedded in us, Lord. 
God, I pray for the, the fearful heart, Lord. Remove that fear and bring your courage and your peace. Help them to see and feel that they are unsnatchable by you. Help them to know that Good Shepherd is pursuing them in new ways, God. Holy Spirit, come. Have your way in this time. We praise you, God. We worship you for who you are. In Jesus' name, the church said.